Choice is proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. Hello, it's the first Monday of the month, so it's Book Choice on Fine Music Radio 101.3. This happy hour, Andrew Marshbanks, Wordsworth Books, bags the best in fiction and non-fiction for us. Beverly Ruas Muller is shocked by the damage that the self-absorbed inflict on relationships in Dawn Garish's unputdownable accident. Peter Soule reviews Peaceful Revolution, where Neil Barnard, with Toby Visa, sets out how he, Neil, as then head of the National Intelligence, was central to the secret negotiations between Nelson Mandela and the National Party government. Philippa Chaffetz liked Andy Fenner's Meat Manifesto, Proper and Delicious, for its proper take on ethical raising animals and Fenner's delicious recipes for making the best of the cheaper cuts. Mike Fitzjames finds that economic signals are everywhere in Signals, the Breakdown of the Social Contract and Rise of Geopolitics by Dr. Pippa Malgram, which sounds an indigestible book, but isn't. Cindy Moritz finds a good, easy read in Gail Honeyman's amusingly titled Eleanor Oliphant completely fine. Philip Todras finds hilarity and heartbreak in The Dog's Last Walk and Other Pieces by Howard Jacobson, Man Booker Prize-winning author of The Finkler Question. Finally, with spring in our step, it's time to plan a water-wise garden. We chat to Glenis Ebedes about her inspiring, beautiful little book, Gardener's Guide to Indigenous Garden Plants of Southern Africa. If you're having a little ziz at lunchtime, do stay awake long enough to enter our easy-peasy competition to win one of two 250 Rand Wordsworth Books vouchers. Andrew Marshbanks, you've bagged the best on Wordsworth shelves. Hi, Gary. Thanks very much. Well, I'm going to start today with a, a new book that's just come in by a new author that we haven't had before. The book's called Eleanor Oliphant by, and is by Gail Honeyman. And this is a book that, lovely cover, we picked it up. In fact, my manager in Long Beach picked it up and said, well, I must just give it a try. And what a delight it is. It's really lovely to find a first-time author and a first-time book that really delights from page to page. Eleanor, of the title, is extremely socially inept. All her interactions, you are quite embarrassed for her. And it's quite humorous as well. But Eleanor is oblivious to everything that's happening around her. And just as you're getting to know Eleanor like this, things change. And the book becomes a little bit more deeper and complex and much more rewarding. It is a wonderful book. I can recommend it to all the book clubs out there. Anyone who wants a nice, light-hearted, but very good, beautifully written first novel, Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine. And it's by Gail Honeyman. And it is 285 Rand. And talking about book clubs, there's a new cookbook that's just come out with a very strange premise, but really quite wonderful. It's turned out beautifully. It's called The Book Club Cookbook. 
Eat Your Words, beautifully illustrated. It's by Louise Helderbrum, and it goes through all the recipes and the talk and the chat about book clubs, how a book club should be done and what you should serve, how you should cook it. There are recipes for quiche here. Everything's really good. It's more the supper line, I would say, or lunch type book club because there are very few biscuits and cakes and that sort of thing which is probably very good but there are puddings and that and the photography is absolutely beautiful you just really want to cook the stuff we're sitting here looking at this book and just thinking oh my god i would really love to bake that chocolate pudding beautiful stuff and that's the book club cookbook eat your words and it is 320 rand Right, then now I reviewed this a while ago, about a year ago, I think. The Defiance, The Life and Choices of Lady Anne Bernard by Stephen Taylor. I recommended it then, and I recommend it now. It's just come into paperback. It's 190 rand. And anyone who is fascinated by this astonishing woman, Lady Anne Bernard, would do well to read it. It's part of the history of Cape Town. She was there right in the beginning. And she was an amazing character, wonderfully complex, and she wrote beautifully. And, of course, the diaries of Lady Anne Bernard have have been selling for years. But this is about her life and a biography of hers. Defiance, The Life and Choices of Lady Anne Bernard by Stephen Taylor, and that's 190 rand. Now, biography has just come out. As you know, politics is hitting us hard and heavy at the time. And this is one by Glynis Breitenbach called Rule of Law, a memoir. Well, Glynis is a pugnacious lawyer, and she used to be a prosecutor in the in the NPA until she was thrown out on spurious arena. She's now been a DA MP and sits in Parliament and questions them about justice and rule of law. And this book just tells you what's behind the woman, the voice that we hear criticizing the ministers, how she worked, how she got where she is, and it is an amazing read. It is so quite in-depth because she goes right into the scandal that was around the way that she was thrown out of the NPA, and it is fascinating stuff. We're getting all the insider knowledge, and I think that that is wonderful. That's Glynis Breitenbach, Rule of Law, and it is 275. Then I'm just going to end up with just mentioning a cookbook that's just come out called Cooked in South Africa. This is a charity cookbook, and it goes right through the top chefs at the moment, their favorite recipe, where they came from, who they are, what they look like, with the restaurant they're in, and a good couple of recipes per chef and I thought it's wonderful this is a book that celebrates the chefs that are out there the chefs that are doing the stuff and making a difference particularly in Cape Town I mean we are known as the culinary capital of South Africa and for a very good reason and this book touches South Africa but it also does Durban beautifully done beautifully photographed a really luxurious edition and it is an aid of charity and the book costs 695 rand. It's called Cooked, and it is cooked in South Africa, 695 rand, well worth seeing. And that's all I have for you today. Cheers. Keep reading. It all sounds yummy. Beverly Ross Muller, the damage that the self-absorbed and narcissistic can inflict on relationships. If you have an annoying relative, then you are not alone. 
There's an endless battle between those who demand, don't tell me what to do, and the havoc their behavior can wreak on families, or whole communities, or even sometimes entire countries. Self-absorption, including narcissism, has at core an unnerving and absolute belief that those who suffer from this syndrome are right to a point that cannot be even questioned. This, by the way, is how we end up with not only cult leaders, but in Trump land, with him labeling everything that he doesn't like as fake news. Accident by Catonian author Dawn Garish explores the limits of the agony this self-absorption may cause in family relationships. A medical doctor who is now also an established writer, Dr. Garish is fearless in confronting such demons. In this her latest novel, Dr. Carol Trahorn is a single parent whose son Max has been admitted to an intensive care unit with severe burns, self-inflicted during one of his gigs as a performance artist. He seems to have a plan, in fact a very elaborate, dangerous art project, using his own body as the canvas in increasingly perilous installations. These are filmed by one of his several friends' disciples who admire his art and share his belief that the only way to confront the world's dangerous excesses and waste is extreme shock. But is there also a possibility that he might be, not to put too fun a point on it, mad? Max is all Carol has beside her work. A single parent of an only child, she is desperate to prevent her son from killing himself as a result of his obsession. He, in turn, points out that he's adult enough to know what he's doing. It's his choice, and he is the one taking the risks for what he sees as a noble cause. After all, he points out, we may deplore, but we do not vilify monks who self-immolate to draw attention to their cause. Although I wonder, given the scars such a sight may cause an onlooker, is not such a protest a violent action to the bystander. Anyway, as Carol tries to engage Max and understand what he's doing, a slow change occurs, especially once she is given news that changes her own perception of mortality. To say more than that would be a spoiler. Her growing interest in art in the creating of something tangible is piqued. This is a thoughtful and sometimes shocking book, Yet it is very readable and fully deserves our attention. We as individuals and as a society struggle with many of these issues almost daily in one form or another, and there are no easy solutions. It is an awkward thing to admit, but here's the thing. We've all known families damaged by a difficult or even dangerous child, and we've also known people permanently damaged by self-absorbed or horrible parents and or families. What's the answer? Of course there isn't one, or at least not one that's pat. But Garish keeps trying to unpack this right to the very moving end. I couldn't put it down. Peter Soule, Neil Barnard's take on his part in the secret negotiations between Nelson Mandela and the Nats.
Neil Barnard has written a second book focused on the transition from apartheid to democracy. The first concentrated on the secret negotiations led by Barnard between Nelson Mandela and the National Party government. In Peaceful Revolution, published by Tafelberg, Barnard with Toby Visa sets out how he, as head of national intelligence, known as NI, was central to the entire process. Barnard is brutally frank, pulling no punches in his views on the senior participants, describing some as selfish, egotists and blatant opportunists, spawning turncoats and power-seekers. He describes the ANC core negotiating team as formidable, representing many shades of opinion. In addition, they had the advantage of a global icon as its principal and leader. Cyril Ramaphosa he regarded as quick-witted, always well-prepared, and a straight talker supported by an equally talented team consisting of Joe Slovo, Mac Maharaj, Vali Musa, and on occasion Matthew Spauser. On the National Party side, he is sympathetic to Gerrit Fulun, who only headed their team for a short while, retiring due to ill health. He describes Fulun as good-natured and often a brilliant academic. Rulf Mayer succeeded Fulun, and Barnard clearly has a soft spot for him, having known Mayer from their days together as students at the University of the Free State. He writes of Mayer's leadership qualities, but regrets that he was not a fluent speaker and struggled to express his point of view clearly. Barnard notes that IFP was not always handled fairly and in a dignified manner, and that South Africa paid a heavy price for, as for a decade, there was a bloody conflict between the ANC and Encarta. On the other hand, the author believes the Democratic Party played a valuable role in the negotiations and could have contributed much more had there been a more formal agreement between it and the National Party. So much for the role players. Barnard must have kept copious notes as he proceeds to set out in great detail the negotiations beginning with the disastrous opening day of Cadessa when F.W. de Klerk misjudged the climate and decided to publicly attack the ANC on the issue of violence. Kubi Kutsia was given the task of informing Mandela in advance that de Klerk would be raising this issue. Kutsia later reported that he had been unable to track down Mandela but had passed the message on to Tabo Mbeki. The Cadessa gathering was a glittering occasion with world attention on South Africa's public constitutional settlement. The leaders of all the participating parties made their opening addresses with the last spot being reserved at his request for the state president. This was a technique de Klerk used on other occasions. He was enthusiastic about the proceedings, but then berated the ANC for its non-compliance with accords by maintaining a private army while negotiating peace at Cadessa. Mandela's reaction hit the assembly like an explosion, writes Barnard. He took to the microphone a second time and accused de Klerk of being the head of an illegitimate, discredited minority regime and one who could not be trusted to meet the low moral standards his regime espoused. In reply, de Klerk indicated he had no intention of attacking Mandela personally, but Barnard writes that the pendulum of power in negotiations swung towards the ANC. Tempers cooled, 
and the search for peace was well underway in spite of the National Party misjudging the atmosphere. Barnard chronicles the discussions over the next few years, including the almost fatal Boipatong massacre, which could have derailed the talks until the end, in 1994, when an interim constitution was agreed. For those interested in the detail of our constitutional development, this will be a fascinating read. Philippa Schaefitz, you look well fed on Meat Manifesto by Andy Fenner. Well, it's a really good book. And it's Meat Manifesto, Proper and Delicious by Andy Fenner, and it's published by Quiver Tree. As the author learned about the industry, he promised himself that he'd only eat meat if he could be certain that it came from an ethically reared animal. Frankie Fenner Meat Merchants was born out of this sensibility. And he's a self-taught butcher, driven by passion, some basic elementary knowledge grew into more substantial skills. He quotes Heston Blumenthal. In his book Family Food, Heston tells how he has taught his children that there is nothing wrong with eating meat as long as the animal has led a healthy life and has been killed humanely. The quality of the meat is directly influenced by the quality of life of the animal itself. Farmers who adhere to these principles farm with methods and techniques that are difficult and often more costly. It is inevitable that the meat will be more expensive, but rather eat less of the best than prepare with great care. Learn how to cook the cheaper, tasty cuts. Yesterday's secondary cuts are becoming primary cuts, valued for their flavour and texture. In this book, Andy Fenner includes invaluable information on selecting and cooking meat, good tips on pairing meat and wine, detailed instructions for perfect roasting, braising, pan-frying, grilling and brying, a section on making sausages at home, and of course a collection of choice recipes, interesting and deliciously different. He introduces you to less familiar cuts of meat and how to cook the cuts you know in ways you hadn't thought of. A babuti made with beef cheeks, grilled beef heart, a lean, dense cut that tastes like steak and does well with an Asian-style treatment. Chimichurri marinated bavette steak, a cut of beef that Andy chooses above ribeye. Beef shin slowly cooked to fork tenderness, then shredded for chili con carne. Grilled pork neck steaks with burnt beaches. He loves Japanese food. And for pork belly domburi, it means rice bowl in Japanese, the pork belly is hand cut or ground, stir fried, then spooned over steamed white rice with kimchi on the side. There's smoked ham hock congee with pickles, deviled lamb kidneys on toast with rum and chilies, rasil hanut lamb rib chops, lob of venison, and almost raw kudu tataki, burnt fig, mozzarella, and bultong salad. The bultong must be wet, lean, and thinly sliced. They're chicken recipes. Chicken and red onions braised in sherry vinegar, then spooned over lentils or polenta. 
His wife, Nicole, makes her speciality spag bowl with lamb instead of beef mince and cooks it slowly in the oven for two and a half hours. It's topped the shaved pecorina rather than grated parmesan. The book is well designed by Libby Doyle, understated and appropriate to the subject. The photographs, straightforward and appealingly attractive, are by Craig Fraser with Justine Kiggin as stylist. It's a fine, good cookbook. In hardcover, it's priced at 550 rand. Mike Fitzjames, Signals, sounds an indigestible book. You say it's compelling. This month, there is an exceptional book with the simple title, Signals, in your nearest bookstore. Everyone of all ages, colours and creeds should obtain a copy. It's written by Dr. Pippa Malgram, a former United States presidential advisor. Dr. Malgram predicted the 2007-2008 financial crisis. She predicted Brexit. And finally, she predicted the election of President Trump. As they say in the Deep South, this gal really knows her stuff. The book is a financial overview written in everyday language which readers with or without knowledge of international finance or even your local financial market can understand. Find out who really controls your country's finances and through that controls your income, your spending and the prospects for the future of you and your family. Drawing on a wonderful range of examples from magazine covers and supermarkets to public protests, signals fascinates. Malgram explains everything. Why chocolate bars, steaks, and apartments are all shrinking. Why the increasing near misses between America's spy planes and the fighter jets of China and Russia are no coincidence. All over the world, rising costs and inflation are breaking the social contract between citizens and their states. This causes the rise of anti-establishment voting. This in turn projects the return of social unrest to emerging markets and heightens resistance to any type of immigration. You may feel that South Africa has had a belly full of political twisters, thieves and criminals in the hierarchy of our government. And you'd be right. It was not just an Indian family who caused this mess. More the welcoming arms and pockets of the president and his acolytes. How can anybody believe that thieves are everywhere but somehow under control? Just read this book and see for yourself that all over the world power corrupts once the checks and balances are thrown aside. This is a truly amazing book, clear and concise, and written not for the financiers, but for the man and woman in the street. I could highly recommend it. Cindy Moritz, Elena Oliphant, is completely fine. And that is Gail Honeyman's debut novel. This is one of those books that you'll want to have at the ready to shove into the hands of someone who needs a good, easy read. It's been given the thumbs up by everyone I know who's read it, which is why I wanted to review it here. Eleanor Oliphant, pronounced by Scottish author Gail Honeyman, Eleanor Oliphant, starts off seemingly quite content with her small, regimented life. 
She lives alone in Glasgow in a council flat she received when she left her last foster home and started university. It is small, undecorated, save for a sentimental pot plant, but like Eleanor, it's functional. She has an office job, accounts receivable if anyone asks, but she never offers the information as no one really cares about accounts receivable at a graphic design company. She can't bear most of her colleagues and they make fun of her behind her back. Weekends seem endless. She has a Friday routine where she picks up a margarita pizza from the Tesco Metro, some wine and two bottles of Glenn's vodka, which she polishes off over the course of the weekend, spread throughout both days so that she's neither drunk nor sober. Monday takes a long time to come around, she says. And on a Wednesday evening, always a Wednesday, Mummy calls from a place far away which she cannot visit. She dreads the calls as Mummy usually tells her what a waste of space she is and makes her cry. Eleanor is a misfit. She is plain, with long hair which she never saw the point in cutting. She has a scar on one bare cheek. And she has no clue about fashion. I had to look up what a jerkin was as she kept taking hers off and putting it on. Apparently, it's a sleeveless jacket. But things change when she meets the IT guy at work, Raymond, who is unexpectedly kind to her. They're walking together in the street one Friday afternoon when they witness an old man fall, and together they make sure he gets to hospital. Through this encounter, Eleanor's world expands to allow her to experience human contact, friendship, and especially kindness. It's the kindness that author Gail Hanneman wants to emphasize, to show the reader how tiny acts can be transformative, particularly for someone like Eleanor who may be lonely or socially inept. It's not only a feel-good story about a socially awkward 30-year-old making good, however. Eleanor carries a dark secret. And through her weekly telephone calls with Mummy, after an attempt to end it all and then a tentative reach into her subconscious, we learn that she has suffered a tragic childhood trauma. By learning to trust, even like, and not judge other people automatically, she can eventually work her way through her own issues. Without giving anything away, near the end of the book, Eleanor says to herself, Sometimes you're too quick to judge people. There are all kinds of reasons why they might not look like the kind of person you'd want to sit next to on a bus, but you can't sum someone up in a 10-second glance. That's simply not enough time. She continues, The voice in my own head, my own voice, was actually quite sensible and rational, I'd begun to realize. It was Mummy's voice that had done all the judging and encouraged me to do so too. Eleanor discovers she can feel... She learns to appreciate the touch of a hand holding hers or an arm around her shoulder, even some regular company over lunch. While there are some noble, overarching themes, the delight in this book is to be found in the gorgeous choice of words and dialogue that bring Eleanor to life and make you miss her when you're done reading. She can become quite taken aback by poor manners and language, she can. Read the book yourself to discover some of her hilarious encounters with other people. Reese Witherspoon has bought the film rights for Eleanor Oliphant is Completely Fine, so we can look forward to seeing how the Americans translate this quirky British tale into a screenplay. I would urge you to read the book first, of course. Philip Todras, Heartbreak and Hilarity, a winning mix. The Dog's Last Walk and Other Pieces by Howard Jacobson, who is the Man Booker Prize-winning author of The Finkler Question. 
But Howard Jacobson also, for 18 years, produced a weekly column for The Independent. He did that for the 18-year lifespan of The Independent until it closed in 2016. So this is a selection of some of his writings. And I must say, taken as in one dose, it really is an overdose of attitude, aptitude, and just an amazing ability to write provocatively, interestingly, and with enormous erudition. So it's quite a difficult book to review in that respect because you just can't read one after the other after the other. You really will find yourself swimming in too much erudition, as I put it. So let me give you some examples, and let me quote. Spoiler alert. Some of what I'm about to say I intend ironically, and that includes the previous sentence. Then again, some of what I say I don't intend ironically. And between these two extremes of meaning of meaning it and not meaning it, are likely to be utterances whose status as to truth and sincerity I'm unsure of myself. And here's a warning that perhaps our Premier Helen Ziller might have taken note of. Here is the joy of writing an essay, as opposed to a manifesto or even an opinion piece. An essay is a process of trying or testing, an experiment in words and thought. Hence those who thronged the armed wing of social media in the hope of destroying what an essay is are behaving exactly as Basil Forty did when he thrashed his stalled Austin 1100 for the limp branch. They are taking the wrong weapon to the wrong object. Unquote. So as you see, the man has lots of attitudes, lots of wisdom, and an enormous amount of erudition as well. Now, let me quote again when he talks about people who critique or criticize other authors. I don't say we must bow before authority. In the great democracy of reading, our first duty is to report what we find. But we must also face the fact that sometimes all we find is ourselves. That which we call tedious might be no more than the echo of our limited capacity to be interested. That which we call silly, no more than a prim refusal to let a writer take us where we are unwillingly, emotionally, or unable intellectually to go. I think that's a sincere warning to myself. And he continues, reading is a two-way activity. Some books fail us, but it happens just as frequently that we fail them. There's silly, sloppy writing out there, but there's silly, sloppy reading too. And I think we'd better take that as a sincere warning about some of the topics he takes on and our ability to actually process some of them and also look at a different point of view, some which are completely politically incorrect but subtly observed and precocious and all the other things that go with that. And really to conclude, I just want to quote this line. Half the time, if it is any good, writing is a wind-up, a trap for the unwary. To be wound up in the playground was always a humiliation be wound up on the page is no different. We must get off our high horses. We look stupid up there. Indeed, I think that's a warning when it comes to reviewing a book or any other book, but this one I've really found a fabulously interesting, provocative and thought-provoking book, which I thoroughly enjoyed. That's The Dog's Last Walk, and the reason I think the title is obvious, because that was the final sort of exit line for his essays when he was writing for The Independent. The Dog Last Walk and other pieces, Howard Jacobson, and it's published by Bloomsbury. Glynis, E-B-E-D-E-S is your surname. I don't know how to pronounce it. 
Nebedees. 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 And how appropriate that you've just launched, it was at Kirstenbosch, your gardener's guide to the indigenous garden plants of southern Africa. And how water-wise you are. It's a pocketbook. It would fit into your gardener's apron and it's absolutely packed with how-to on garden-friendly, bird and butterfly-friendly, wildlife-friendly, indigenous, low-maintenance trees, shrubs and bedding plants. Give us your green-fingered background and how you came to write this inspiring book. Well, I started my landscaping business about six years ago. And when I started, I decided to focus on indigenous from the beginning. And when I referred to plants to my staff, I started pointing out that green plant, no, that other green plant. And I very soon realized that it was important for them to start learning about the plants. I looked around for some books and I couldn't find anything appropriate for them. And I wanted something lightweight, easy to move around with. And that's how the book came about. Yes, indeed, you own Grounded Landscaping. It's in Johannesburg. I wish it was in Cape Town. And you so cleverly suggest in your book various themes when you're designing a garden. Tell us them. Yes. So when you go to the nursery, it's quite daunting because you've got thousands of plants. So it's best to actually have some sort of theme that you want for your garden or else it ends up being a bit of a fruit salad. <laughs> so I've divided the book, well, I've basically said the themes in, that one can have in, in their garden are bush bells, grassland, forest, rainbows, and a succulent theme. And I've grouped plants according to the themes that they would be most suitable for. And some of them are surprisingly, be- I say surprisingly, isn't that ignorant of me? But I mean, Glenn, some of them are surprisingly beautiful. You know, one tends to think of a boss as being really mainly sort of grey and olive green. But there's some very beautiful plants there, aren't there? They're absolutely fantastic plants, and you can basically get any colour on the palette, on the colour spectrum. And here in the Cape, we've watched our gardens this summer dry and die. It's, it's been horrible, as you know. How would one replace a thirsty lawn, and what would you do with a water-guzzling swimming pool? Well, with the water-guzzling lawn, it is the highest maintenance as well as the highest water-usage plant that one could use in their garden. So, obviously, some people want to have some flat areas in which they can play and do their thing, but a lot of rolling lawns is actually not the best way of going around a garden. So you can actually just dig up some areas of the lawn and replace it with some bedding plants. And I think the nice thing is you have all those little symbols that show whether it grows in light or shade, how much water it does or doesn't need, whether it's fragrant and whether it attracts birds and butterflies. In your garden, what's the wildlife in your garden? My garden is fantastic. I've got a tiny garden, actually in a complex and I've actually got a bird list and we've got 50 species that we've recorded in our garden in the last six years. No cats? Well, we do have our neighbours' cats visiting every now and then because, of course, they're enticed by the lovely birds that visit our gardens. But that's also part of nature that you have to deal with. Yeah, I know. We were talking to... Oh, gosh, I'm going to get her surname wrong again. We were talking to Glenis Ebdes about her brilliant little book. It's The Gardener's Guide to Indigenous Garden Plants of Southern Africa. And that's the lot then. Book lovers shouldn't miss this year's Open Book Festival in Cape Town from September 6 to 10. 
More than 100 local and international authors will take part. You'll find the full programme on www.openbookfestival.co.za. From Rick Everett, who kindly compiled the music, and from Mataba Taba Radebi, who cleverly kept the show on the road, and from me, Gory Bose Taylor, it's happy reading. Book Choice was proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. Hi, I'm Andrew from Wordsworth Books. We have bookshops that are a bit different. We have staff that are a bit different. We love our customers, and we're passionate about our books. From paperbacks at 59 Rand to Leonardo da Vinci at 2,000 Rand, our selection is remarkable, and we sell special stationery as well. Wordsworth. We sell books the old-fashioned way. We read them. FMR.